0: Hello there, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, swagmen and swagettes. I'm your host, Joe Walker, and this is the Jolly Swagman podcast. Welcome to episode three of Housing Bubble Week. Now, I'm going to begin this episode with a story and some theory. This will take a few minutes, but it will be fun and it will help everything make sense. In mid-2018, after a recommendation from Friend of the Pod and former guest Jonathan Tepper, I began reading Michael Lewis's book, Boomerang. When I read the chapter on the Irish housing bubble, it was like the scales had fallen from my eyes. Lewis recounts meeting the University College Dublin economist, Morgan Kelly. Kelly specialised in medieval population statistics and wrote articles that were considered esoteric even by the standards of academic economists. But he emerged from obscurity to call attention to what he rightly perceived to be a mammoth housing bubble living right under his nose in Ireland. As Kelly describes his experience to Lewis, I was in this position, sort of being a passenger on this ship, and you see a big iceberg, and so you go and ask the captain, is that an iceberg? Kelly's most strenuous warning to the ship's captain took the form of an academic article published in June of 2007 titled, On the Likely Extent of Falls in Irish House Prices. The working paper version appeared in February 2007, just one month before Irish house prices commenced their drawn-out but devastating decline. Kelly's paper strikes me as remarkable for two reasons. One, Kelly made some bold, theoretical claims about how housing markets should be conceptualised. He wrote that housing markets are better modelled not as efficient markets but as information cascades where the actions of other agents signal their private information and can cause individuals to ignore their own signals and follow the herd. Let me help you get your head around this idea briefly before I return to the other remarkable feature of Kelly's paper. The notion of an informational cascade is incredibly important for you to know. It can be traced back to a highly influential paper published in 1992 by three economists, Sushil Bikchandani, David Hirschleifer, and Ivo Welch. The paper is titled, A Theory of Fads, Fashion, Custom, and Cultural Change as Informational Cascades, and you'll find it in the show notes to this podcast. Ominously, the authors open their article with a verse from the Gospel of Matthew, the one that goes, Let them alone, they be blind leaders of the blind, and if the blind lead the blind, both shall fall into the ditch. But what is an informational cascade? An informational cascade occurs when it's optimal for an individual having observed the actions of those ahead of him to follow the behavior of the preceding individual without regard to his own information. It's kind of like when you're waiting at the pedestrian lights to cross the road and someone beside you has their head buried in their iPhone. You notice there are no cars and so you cross the road. The person beside you notices you crossing and without checking for cars follows you over. Informational cascades are actually a subset of a broader phenomenon known as herding, but whereas herding is about behavior only, informational cascades describe how people update their beliefs based on the observed actions of those acting ahead of them. So what does all this have to do with bubbles? Well, in their paper, Biksh Hirschleifer and Welch outline a specific model where each agent acting in sequence enjoys the same gain or pays the same cost of adopting some behavior. As a result, they explicitly note that although cascades may apply to bubbles or crashes, this is not directly captured by our model, since the cost of adopting, for example buying a stock, increases as a bubble forms. But there are various other models in the cascade literature that may be used to describe bubbles. Bob Schiller, the Yale economist and Nobel Prize winner, had been making this argument long before Morgan Kelly. Schiller has explicitly argued that the U.S. housing bubble can be thought of as an informational cascade. Here he is, writing in the New York Times in March 2008, quote, Imagine the individuals in a group must decide, each, whether real estate is a terrific investment and whether to buy some property. Suppose that there is a 60% probability that any one person's information will lead to the right decision. Suppose houses are really of low investment value, but the first person to make a decision reaches the wrong conclusion, which happens, as we've assumed, 40% of the time. The first person, A, pays a high price for, that, for a home, thus signalling to others that houses are a good investment. The second person, B, has no problem if his own data seem to confirm the information provided by A's willingness to pay a high price. But B faces a quandary if his own information seems to contradict A's judgment. In that case, B would conclude that he has no worthwhile information and so he must make an arbitrary decision, say by flipping a coin to decide whether to buy a house. The result is that even if houses are of low investment value, we may now have two people who make purchasing decisions that reveal their conclusion that houses are a good investment. As others make purchases at rising prices, more and more people will conclude that these buyers' information about the market outweighs their own. And that is how informational cascades can snowball. In his book, Irrational Exuberance, Schiller notes that informational cascades are not a complete theory of bubbles, but they do have relevance for investor behavior. So, back to Morgan Kelly. The second and perhaps most interesting aspect of his article on the likely extent of falls in Irish house prices was its reception. It was received with as much warmth and good humour as Martin Luther's 95 theses pinned to the door of the Wittenberg Castle Church. At a conference on the 4th of July 2007 in Donegal, Ireland's then Taoiseach, or Prime Minister, Bertie A. Hearn, wondered aloud why people sitting on the sidelines cribbing and moaning about the economy did not commit suicide. The comment was interpreted as a clear swipe at Kelly And another economist david mcwilliams who were nearly alone in raising the alarm about ireland's housing bubble as a prominent irish bank analyst in dublin commenting on the mindset of journalists and bankers at the time put it you're either for us or against us and team ireland was unequivocally for the bubble it's interesting that housing bubbles often seem to inspire this sort of vociferous conformity Friend of the pod and former guest Jonathan Tepper was designated an enemy of Spain in 2009 for pointing out the, at that point, nose-bleedingly obvious Spanish housing bubble. According to John Malden, Tepper was added to a government blacklist containing three other names. None of them were allowed to be quoted or appear on any media programs after that. The attempted ostracisms of Kelly and Tepper make sense. Not only are housing booms bound up in nice national narratives about for example, The Australian Dream or The Celtic Tiger, but they swell the net worth of homeowners, so almost everyone has a dog in the fight. Criticise a housing bubble, and you might not commit literal suicide, as Bertie Ahern would have it, but you're certainly at risk of committing career suicide if you inhabit an industry or milieu that depends on the bubble. Which brings me to this episode. I have a secret for you, and I want to share it. I think we can do one better than Morgan Kelly... Or Robert Schiller. Bearing in mind informational cascades, the tense conformity surrounding housing bubbles, and the notion that prices always go up that feeds them, I think the best way to model housing bubbles yet devised is to describe them as availability cascades. Yes, one more piece of jargon for you to digest. I need to introduce this final concept now before we throw to the interview. An availability cascade is an incredibly powerful construct, advanced in 2007 by two leading US academics, the preeminent legal scholar Cass Sunstein of nudge theory fame, and the social scientist Timur Karan, our guest. An availability cascade combines three concepts. First, an informational cascade, with which you're now familiar. Secondly, a reputational cascade. Like an informational cascade, in a reputational cascade, late responders sometimes go along with the decisions of early responders. But in a reputational cascade, they do so not just because the late responders think the early responders are right, but also because they perceive their reputation will be damaged if they dissent from the early responders. So an availability cascade is a hybrid. It assumes the informational and and the reputational. It prioritizes to different degrees mental shortcuts and social relationships. Lastly, this combined cascade is mediated by the availability heuristic, which is the third and I promise final concept you'll need to remember. So what's an availability heuristic? The availability heuristic is a mental shortcut humans use, which was first described by psychologists Daniel Kahneman and Amos Tversky. It occurs when we judge the frequency of a category by the ease with which we can call examples to mind, in other words, by how available they are. For instance, imagine there's news just in of a dramatic plane crash. The news will be salient and recent, and if you have to catch a flight that day, you will feel especially nervous doing it, even though the statistical base rate for a crash is materially unaffected. Another example is this. Imagine you're overwhelmed with good news stories about house price increases in your neighbourhood. You might be liable to jump to the conclusion that prices must always go up here, or that prices are highly likely to go up in a geographically disconnected suburb. To tie these threads together, an availability cascade is an informational slash reputational cascade mediated by the availability heuristic. It generates a self-reinforcing cycle whereby a particular belief becomes relentlessly more pervasive. I'd been aware of the concept for some time, and I realised it might hold a more complete way to describe housing bubbles. I decided I had to talk to Timur Karan, the original proponent of the idea, to hear whether I was right, straight from the horse's mouth. Timur is Professor of Economics and Political Science at Duke University. And as you'll hear, he's one of my favourite social scientists. Now, this episode is an excerpt from a much longer conversation I held with Tamor. The excerpt is specifically about how availability cascades might apply to housing bubbles, and that's why I've introduced the general concept myself, because in the way we're about to jump in, that context would have been lacking. Tomor and I take five to ten minutes to warm up, but if you can be patient with us, you will be richly intellectually rewarded. So, without much further ado, please enjoy my chat. Timur Karan. Timur Karan, thank you so much for joining me. Thanks for inviting me. Now, Timur, in an email to you, I mentioned economic bubbles. And this yes. is a topic my listeners know me for. It's become somewhat of an obsession. I was hoping we could try to apply the concept of availability cascades to an economic bubble, like for example, a housing bubble. Have you thought about that?
1: So, uh, a little bit. Uh, I've thought less about uh, housing bubbles than about stock bubbles, but they're uh, bubbles that occur in the stock market. In stock markets, most of the players are typically interested in in returns, and they're typically interested in whether uh, a stock is going to go up or down. In the housing market, they're they're typically interested in when they're buying a house, in among other things, in whether the house is going to maintain its its value. However, in trying to gather information on the value of a stock or the value of a home, the probable trajectory of the value of a a home, you also rely on experts. You also do some research. You look at good uh, people who are quite knowledgeable about, let's say, the the housing uh, market. You look at literature on the on the housing market. Now, there, cascades can play a role because there are are. If certain neighborhoods are considered, or buying a house in a certain neighborhood is considered a good investment for the future, and if most people are saying that, there's a risk in saying the opposite if you go along with the crowd and say like most people that this neighborhood is going to hold its value it's going to become more and more popular and things turned out the uh, turn out the other way you haven't lost very much because after all that's what all the experts were saying but if you take the position especially if you're a young realtor trying to you know advising people and you advise people not to buy in that neighborhood to go somewhere else and you're wrong the neighborhood that you steered people away from actually gained in value you take your reputation takes a hit So, cascades can occur there and bubbles are often driven by people's reluctance, especially as home values are rising, people's reluctance to say that the market is overheated. Gotcha. So this is, this is where, and, and it can be, it's both the, the availability cascade is the correct concept here, because the people who are participating in promoting the notion that a particular neighborhood is a good investment are driven partly by informational motives. They're Reading other experts for information to learn from them, but at the same time they're trying to protect their reputation. They don't want to make a mistake where they can be singled out as having gotten it wrong.
0: Timur, you you remind me of a quote of John Maynard Keynes. I think it. I think he said that it's better for ones career to have failed conventionally than to have succeeded unconventionally
1: I I remember I remember reading that somewhere I can't remember in which of his books he says that
0: Mm. but basically there's more there's more downside to being wrong if you go against the mainstream consensus than there is downside to be wrong within the consensus yes Mm.
1: Yes, that is that is correct. Now, this isn't to say that there are some people, in spite of that uh, observation, who take the risks and are contrarian. Mm. Uh, there are people who people vary in their risk tolerance. And people vary in the degree to which they believe in a certain cause. And uh, they play important roles in ending cascades, in ending the types of cascades we're talking about, bubbles. Mm -hmm. So bubbles... sooner or later, they they come to an end. Mm. They burst. And then things start going, going in the other direction. They burst. Right before they burst, they're usually people who say, it's time to sell. It's time not to invest in this market. It's time not to invest in housing, period. This these the housing market is overheated, it's better to rent. There are people who start saying this. Initially, they're ignored, but you have a critical mass. Again, the mix of the, the risk involved, the risk in that we just talked about varies also. It's a lot higher in early stages of the bubble than at the very end. You get to a point where the chances, if you go go against the consensus, the chances of being wrong are much lower.
0: Mm. Now, in your original paper with Cass, you introduce an extension of the idea, which is this lovely idea of availability entrepreneurs, people yes. who might... Even on some intuitive level, understand the dynamics of an availability cascade and stoke it and fuel it to increase the availability of certain information and generate this self reinforcing cycle. I've been reflecting on this concept in the context of the Australian housing market because you have a lot of people who charge for seminars and boot camps and courses where they can teach you how to become a property investor. And invariably, They'll elevate stories of people who have achieved immense capital gains through property investing, and the stories of capital gain increases become more available during a housing bubble, thanks in part, I think, to these, what I term, availability entrepreneurs of the Australian housing market. Because one of the myths that gets perpetrated in any bubble, but taking a housing bubble in this instance is that, you know, you can't lose. You can't this asset class never goes down in price. And people have literally been saying in Australia, I date our bubble is beginning in nineteen ninety eight. The first phase lasted until two thousand and eight. Prices went sideways. Australia escaped the Great Recession for a number of reasons. Yeah. We reinflated the bubble from about two thousand and twelve to two thousand and seventeen. It peaked in October. 2017. Uh, But one of the things people were saying to each other during both phases of the bubble was house prices in Australia double every seven to 10 years. This was almost like a mantra that was repeated. Um, Of course, if you take it to its illogical endpoint, we'd reach a situation in Australia. I mean, price to income ratios in Sydney were over 11x at one point. But if that continued, we would have reached an absurd conclusion where people, you know, it would have been impossible to repay your mortgage during your lifetime. You would have had to pass it on to your children, even for middle-class suburban homes. Um, but it was still repeated and it became... People seemed to judge the, the prospects of success or the how fail-safe real estate was as an investment based on how easily they could call to mind things like this mantra that prices always go up, success stories that they hear are uh, propagated through availability entrepreneurs. And be- because I've been looking at so many property market-related literature on the internet, my Facebook feed is now always full of ads. I've been targeted by the availability entrepreneurs. So, I'll always get the videos I, in my news. Yes. Them standing in front of a whiteboard um, telling me about their students who've achieved immense capital gains. Um, I just thought it was a lovely application of the idea of availability entrepreneurs. I don't know if you have anything to add to that. that that's just my sort of two cents. I
1: You've given an excellent example. I'm I'm certainly no expert uh, on the Australian (laughs) uh, property market, but I've learned a great deal from you. It does ring a bell, though, because this is, uh, we've lived through housing bubbles here. I used to before moving to North Carolina 13 years ago, we lived in Southern California, which had its own uh, huge housing bubbles. And I remember when we were uh, buying our own uh, first uh, uh, home, uh, we were being told not only by our real estate agent that if we waited even a week mm. we would be lose we would we would be facing higher uh prices and there were people who were i remember at the time who were who knew of course because we were in the market for a house and this is this was before we had the uh, internet, they would learn through real estate agents who is in the market looking for a house and they would, you would find flyers on your uh, uh, door. They would, uh, flyers would come through the mail inviting you to these uh to these courses that uh, would teach you how to make a lot of money flipping houses, buying houses, and also teaching you how to buy a house wisely and so on. And invariably, what they were pushing was That you auto—it's this is this is you could never leave. And I remember looking at this thing and seeing all these charts of how, in the last 20 years, in Los Angeles, prices had never uh, fallen. Of course, they had. There were times when, for example, in the Great Depression, when prices did fall, cleverly and self-servingly, they started their series at a bottom and you know so that they would they would be able to show you exaggerate the the gains that you would yeah. uh, that you would uh see and i remember seeing that ha, seeing how they would take out very strategically pick out certain periods <laughs> and tell you how that is exactly like the period you're living through where in one year prices rose 20 percent yeah and so these were again these were availability entrepreneurs people who were uh who were pushing this who were feeding this deliberately feeding the bubble but also in the process making money because people were paying a lot of money to join these courses to take these courses Mm. and to learn. The first class was always free, I remember. They'd bring you in there for free and they'd give you a few juicy things about how, you know, to to whet your appetite. And then of course you had to pay in advance, I don't know what it was, a $1,000, $2,000, something like that. There were these people who were actually uh, benefiting from this. So now of course this availability entrepreneurship works through if you're if you use Facebook, if you use Twitter, of course it, it it can use far more sophisticated means. They can just look at what you're searching, what Google searches you did, and within five minutes, you know, the, the ads that pop up mm. reflect that.
0: Yeah. Tim, I have yeah. so many stories that resonate with that. I often attend these seminars uh, that, that the property availability entrepreneurs host. I went to one in Sydney at the end of last year. It was like the Australian property market's answer to Tony Robbins. Um, yeah. It was, you know, really wild. We walked in, you know, Happy by uh, Pharrell Williams was playing Um there were vip seats and you know a stage and everything and they brought up the people who had been really successful to tell their stories but at the back in between the sessions were people waiting with you know the the fpos machines and the the paper to sign people up to the to the programs yeah. i went yes. to another in sydney on the on the 5th of march they had a seminar and they were showing us charts of australian house prices going back to 1986. now in fairness the Australian Bureau Bureau of Statistics only began publishing national house prices in 1986. Similar story for the US, I think. Your national house price index wasn't compiled until until recently, and then then Case and Schiller did some excellent work after that. But, you know, it is misleading because two-thirds of that period overlap with an historic housing bubble. So you're going to give a disproportionate sense of capital appreciation compared with if you took a longer-run price index. So, Nigel Stapleton, a fantastic academic at the University of New South Wales, did the first long-run price series for Australia going back to 1890. If you use that, I don't remember Stapleton's paper exactly. It was, it was the subject of his, his PhD thesis, but I think prices from 1890 to 1990 increased 0.5% a year in real terms. I'll put a link up for people so I get it right. Similar yeah. story to, um, you know, what Schiller founds long-run prices in the U.S. Similar to what Pete Eichholtz found in the Herengracht Index. But this is another little image they put up in their slideshow at this seminar I went to on the 5th of March. They're combining, um, I don't know if you can see that very well, Australian, yes, I Australian it... real estate versus yes. shares and I think bonds, um, yes. To say that you know the returns compared to shares are like just as good, but yes. the period the period cuts off in two thousand and sixteen. <laughs> yes, um, and I went to this on the fifth of March two thousand and nineteen, and of course the Australian housing bubble peaked in October. The national bubble, national prices that is, peaked in October two thousand and seventeen. So we've yeah. cut off that period where prices have fallen more than fourteen yes. percent in Sydney and more than eleven percent in Melbourne to create the impression um, or to make make the impression more available that real estate is the the best investment.
1: Favorable information, favorable to that view is made more available and information that discredits that view is made unavailable. Mm. This is, and now this is in this particular case, I doubt that uh, that, uh, violence is being used to keep people from reaching this, this uh, information. It's just that, uh, people are very busy and people don't have the time to do research. You put, uh, plenty of paperwork in front of them that contains the type of information you want them to have. Most people aren't going to go much further than that. And most people don't have the sophistication that you have to, Look at a time series and say, wait a minute, we're in, this is 2018. Why does this stop in 2016? (laughs) Now, most people, to most people, this doesn't occur. Most people are not statistically that sophisticated. Mm. You show people 10 examples, you bring them, you know, parade, put in front of them 10 examples who give, who tell you anecdotes about how they've become so wealthy flipping houses or how they did so well uh, buying their uh, their house, how they're able to retire early. And uh, a lot of people uh, think that that's very valuable information. But in a large society in a large city like sydney you can find 10 people uh, who did very well in housing you can find 10 people who did uh, horribly in housing it doesn't tell you anything by itself mm. it's not statistically representative but most people are not statistically uh, uh, statistically sophisticated which is in which is one of kahneman and teresky's points we use heuristics but bec- as a substitute for proper statistics and for controlled experiments and so on. These are mm. the availability heuristic is a rule of thumb. Mm. And so you are availability entrepreneurs are exploiting this rule of thumb, and the seminars and the literature that they show and the dazzling uh, uh, the dazzling graphs and so on are all intended to as you put it put it well to make available certain images in people's minds and the better they're prepared greater the variety of the the ways that you have presented certain information the more available that information is they've heard it through
0: more willing they, to take a risk, more willing to pay for the course.
1: Yeah, they, they're willing that they, you, you reach them through anecdotes, you reach them through graphs of the kind that you just showed, you reach them through you know, famous people who come and speak and tell you about their stories. You do it in all these ways. All this makes it more available when people think about housing. These are the things that
0: come to their mind. Yeah.
1: And, of course, they're willing then to pay for it.
0: Exactly. Just finally, Timor, maybe, maybe yeah. we can finish on this. What is additionally inf- interesting to me about availability cascades as they apply to economic bubbles is they seem to have serious implications, maybe even offer a rebuke to the efficient markets hypothesis, which from its throne room in the University of Chicago still exerts a uh, a long and, and strong influence on the economics profession and, and financial economics in particular, of course, because efficient markets say that investors use their own private information and, and judgments to come to an opinion about what the intrinsic value of an asset should be. And the sort of aggregation of their opinions gives us a wisdom of the crowds, which brings that market price's Close as is realistically possible to the true worth of the asset, but if investors are under an availability cascade, uh, or you know more more banally, uh, just an informational cascade that's causing them to decide to invest, it's not an efficient market. You wouldn't expect prices to follow a random walk if people are being influenced by the herd.
1: Yes, and I I would go further than that and say that you wouldn't expect uh, the market to follow a random walk if there are availability entrepreneurs Hmm. who are deliberately trying to affect the uh, uh, deliberately trying to distort The information that is available to people. Now, having said that, let me immediately offer a counter-argument to that. And the counter-argument is that you can have availability entrepreneurs working at cross-purposes. With regard to housing, you can have availability entrepreneurs who are also uh, uh, saying you can make a lot of money by shorting the Market, and by you know, you can make make a lot of money by uh, investing in other areas, by uh, taking your money out of houses, housing, and renting, and and putting your money into other areas where the returns are going to be greater. Housing prices will will fall. You you'll be able to buy a house twice as large for uh, what you're giving up now.
0: Mm. So and I you take, can you mean, have you mean shorting the market just in a sort of colloquial sense because I mean you can't really yes. you can't directly short a, a housing C-
1: correct just yep. in the collo colloquial sense uh, but you can uh, the the point is the defenders of the efficient market hypothesis will will say that as long as people are free to enter the market to defend any view concerning the market mm. concerning where assets are going to go. As long as there is freedom, there is going to, this is the efficiency is going to hold because people will, there will be entrepreneurs. If there is a housing bubble, they will see that there's a price price to be made by betting against it and teaching people that uh, the opposite. Now, what they miss is that the the political system may be biased in favor of one versus another. The economic system may be biased in favor of one. The whole real estate industry might be biased in favor of one rather than uh, the other. And so... Uh, you're less likely to get credible availability entrepreneurs defending one position than the other. So the efficient market hypothesis assumes away the institutions of society that can make one type of availability entrepreneur, that can give an advantage to one type of yep. availability entrepreneur over uh, another.
0: Let me let me add a, is, me add a yeah, quick example just to demonstrate yeah. that. I mean, this was very true in Ireland. There was a strong conformity between the media and the elites when it came to their housing bubble. But in Australia, for instance, we have you know two big mastheads: the Australian newspaper, which is owned by Rupert Murdoch's News Corp, and the Sydney Morning Herald, which is Fairfax. News Corp is sort of right-leaning, Fairfax is sort of left-leaning as people traditionally understand them. And yet both have interest in the property market. Fairfax owns Domain and News Corp has a stake in REA. Hmm. But sorry, please continue. That's just sort of an example of, of the point you're making about how institutions can create parameters which might favour some availability entrepreneurs yes, over we- others.
1: You've you've given a good good example, and in the in the real estate uh, sector in the, in the United States, again, you have uh, lots of people who have a stake, lots of very sort of powerful players who have, who have a stake in keeping property values uh, high, and uh, including local governments whose tax revenues are tied to uh, housing prices Mm. so they have an interest in perpetuating if you're in power right now you would like and you know that there's a a a bubble underway you sense that there's a bubble underway you would rather keep the bubble going and have it burst after you're out of office Mm. because while you're in office Tax revenue is is high, therefore you can provide all the services that you you promised. Once you leave office and you go, you run for something else and you've uh, you've moved on. Uh, it's somebody else who has to deal with the burst bubble and the mm-hmm. depressed tax revenue. So that's again uh, uh, an asymmetry that favors an institutional asymmetry, that favors in the American case, uh, I don't know whether this uh, resonates with you in Australia, but uh, at least in the American case, that favors one type of entrepreneur over another, gives an advantage to them. So the playing field is not flat. Yes, it's true, in principle, you can availability entrepreneurs can cancel each other out in markets. But in specific cases, they will not cancel each other out because institutions favor one or the other. Mm.
0: And there may be a case for regulation. And there might be a
1: case of regulation, but of course regulation as there's a uh, – for you have regulation, you can have regulatory capture, mm. and certain certain groups of people can distort, can can use regulations to give them particular advantages. So there's no there's no perfect world in which you can level the playing field for availability entrepreneurs through uh, and ensure that bubbles, financial bubbles don't occur, Mm. whether it's in the housing market or the, or the stock market, because, uh, because uh, regulation is a possible solution, but it's also, also a possible aggravator of the problem. Mm. The wrong type of person might put in place regulations that favor the already favored availability entrepreneurs
0: we've certainly had our fair share of that as well in Australia yes, yes. Timor Krona it's, it's a complex world populated by humans not econs and thank you so much for helping us to understand it in a clearer light and availability cascades I'm um, going to refer everyone to your readings, to your books uh, to YouTube videos and to papers you've written and thank you so much for, for joining me and giving me the time thank you
1: so much for inviting me to uh, your program and I greatly enjoyed the conversation and learned a lot about Australia <laughs> <laughs> yeah. thank you
0: I'm forever- Thanks so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. Before you go, I have a quick favor to ask. If you liked this episode, please rate and review the podcast on iTunes. I know everyone asks, but it really makes a difference. I make these podcasts for free. They are bloody time consuming, but they're important and I couldn't do it without you. Finally, for show notes and links to everything discussed in that conversation, you can find them on my website, josephnoelwalker.com. That's my full name, J-O-S-E-P-H-N-O-E-L-W-A-L-K-E-R.com. You can also get in touch with me there or on Twitter. My Twitter handle is at Joseph N. walker. Thanks again for listening. Talk to you soon. Ciao.